animals in descending order of size is the odd one out. Little quiz to get you concentrating this morning, okay? A bull, a pig, a goat, a lamb, or a dove. And this has nothing to do with flu, all right? Well, if you're one of the more than 300 people in Charlotte Chapel who's been reading through the Bible in a year, you should know the answer. The answer, of course, is pig. For those who haven't read through the Bible or aren't Jewish by background, let me explain why pig is the odd one out. It's one of the animals that God designated as unclean in his law, which he gave to the people of Israel, which you'll find in the Old Testament part of our Bible, and especially the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament, and particularly in the book of Leviticus. Now, the people of Israel were not only forbidden from eating an unclean animal like a pig, bacon was banned, but even more importantly, far more importantly, They were forbidden from sacrificing a pig to God. If you wanted to find forgiveness with God, you could offer, and the circumstances varied according to what you'd done wrong, you could offer a bull, a goat, a lamb, or a dove, but not a pig. A pig was an unacceptable Sacrifice. Now, back to the future and the present. The big question for us today, whether we are Jews or Gentiles, non-Jews, do these laws still apply today? Is a pig still an unacceptable sacrifice? And is a bull, a goat, a lamb, or a dove a required sacrifice? And if not, why not? What sacrifices does God require of us? A few months ago in an evening service, you may have been there, I was sharing how I was was asked this question from a very unexpected source. I was ordering some food from our favorite Indian restaurant in Morningside. And I've got to know the man who runs the shop. He's a Muslim from Pakistan. So we have quite a bit in common, having lived there. And as I went in, he said to me, are you still working for the church? So I said, yes, I am. He said, good, I have a question for you. And to my amazement, he reached under the counter and he brought out a really old copy of the Bible. And he laid it on the counter and he turned in the Bible to the book of Leviticus. And he said, I've been reading here, and these laws are like the laws that we follow as Muslims, what God requires of us. So, why don't you Christians follow God's law? Now, it wasn't a very easy question when you're only expecting a chicken biryani and three papadums. (laughs)
But the answer, which I confess I didn't explain very clearly, and I hope to go back again, is this. God has now replaced his old covenant or agreement, what the word means, with the Jewish people with a new and better and especially important for Islam and all religions that were established after Jesus, a final covenant agreement. He has made with all peoples, not just with Jews, but with all peoples on earth. And this new covenant was made, or to use the Bible word, it was sealed with blood. Not that of an animal, but with the blood of Jesus, God's Son, come to earth as one of us. At the beginning of his public ministry, when he was about the age of 30, one day Jesus was walking by Sea of Galilee, and John the Baptist, the man who was sent to prepare the way for him, saw him coming and pointed him out to his disciples, and he said in a loud voice, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Three years after this, Jesus died on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. His sacrifice means that the sacrifice of animals, any animals, is not just unacceptable to God, it is totally Completely unnecessary. So today, because we live in the year 2009 AD and not BC, you didn't come into Charlotte Chapel bringing a lamb or a dove, let alone a bull. We do not need to bring animals as a sacrifice. We can find forgiveness and so come to God through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. Animal sacrifices are no longer necessary. So, are there any sacrifices which God asked those who follow his son, Jesus Christ, to make? Yes, there are. But they are not sacrifices for sin. So what are the sacrifices you are called to make if you claim today to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus? Well, that's what we've been trying to answer in our monthly series on the first Sunday morning of every month as we focused on a well-known hymn, Take My Life. And if you are here for the first of the series, we learned that Christians who have been forgiven are called to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice of our bodies. Romans 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in Rome, says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, today we focus on one specific body part or function. Take my voice. 
And we're going to look at another verse in the New Testament which tells us that if we're Christians, we are to offer to God the sacrifice of praise. I want to read the verse in context, and it really will help this morning to have a Bible in front of you. Uh, So if you haven't got one, it's fine. There are Bibles in the pews. If you take one and turn to the book of Hebrews, that's in the New Testament, chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 9 through 16. If you've got a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1211. Our verse is verse 15, but let's read it in the context in which we find it. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city But we are looking for the city that is to come. Therefore, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is God's new covenant, new covenant. Testament word. Now, this letter, keep your Bible open in Hebrews because we're going to be looking at it in more detail. This letter, as its name suggests, is written to Hebrews. It's written to Christians who come, were either born as Jews or are from a Jewish background. And they'd come to follow Jesus. It had been a very costly step for them. Insults and persecution from their fellow Jewish community. And even for some of them, their property had been confiscated, and some of them had even been put in prison. Yet they joyfully accepted the cost of following Jesus. However, over the years that followed, things had not improved. The pressure had not let up. So much so that some of them were now seriously considering going back to their old religion, animal sacrifices and all. So this letter to the Hebrews is written with this background in mind to encourage them, to remind them that the new covenant under Christ is far, far better than anything they're going to go back to under the old covenant. It has been replaced, the old covenant, by something far better, through someone far better. Now, if you're still in Hebrews, keep your finger in in the verse, but just turn to the first verses of the book in Hebrews 1. That's page 1201. 
And look how the writer begins. He says, in the past, here's the contrast again, past and present. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What is he saying? The work of Jesus is finished. He's provided purification for sins. And his mission is successful. He's now ascended. He's in the place of authority before God. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the old way of approaching God, the old covenant, has been superseded by a new and far, far better covenant. And the rest of the letter to the Hebrews, which I encourage you to read and study for yourself, unpacks this in detail, comparing the old with the new and encouraging these Christians, don't go back, don't go on. Like the marathon runners today in Edinburgh, he says, you've been running a long marathon race. Don't give up on the last lap and miss out on the reward. Run with patience, perseverance. The race marked out for you, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That's chapter 12. We've jumped 12 chapters, all right? So the whole emphasis here is, how do you approach God? What's the old deal? What's the new deal, if I can put it in that way? Now, approaching God, of course, is no casual matter. Think by way of example, how you approach Her Majesty the Queen. If I happen to hear that she's in Holyrood Palace, I cannot just go to the supermarket, pick up a bunch of nice flowers, go down there, bang on the door, and ask her if she's got the kettle on. Well, I could, but I'd be thrown out. No, I have to have an invitation from her to come, and if and when I come, I have to follow protocol. So it is with approaching God, yet infinitely far more. At least with the Queen, we're on equal footing as far as humanity is concerned, we're all human beings, if not in status. But with God, we are talking about weak, finite, sinful human beings approaching a God who is omnipotent, infinite, and holy. So how can we approach God, and how can we know that we'll be accepted, that our offering that we bring will be acceptable? The answer for the people of Israel, of course, was that only the way that God chooses and so the protocol, as it were, is laid down in the Old Testament, in the law of given through Moses. Now, there were four basic requirements if you wanted to approach God. You had to come to the right person, a priest. Secondly, you had to come at the right place, the temple. Thirdly, you had to bring the right offering, an animal or some of the produce of your land. And you had to come fourthly at the right time the right time of day, and sometimes the right time of year. But now this letter to the Hebrews says, all this has changed under the new covenant. So as the writer comes to chapter 13 and concludes what he calls only a short letter, <laughs> verse 22 of chapter 13, he tells these Hebrews now in chapter 13, this is all background, we're building up to the verse now, all right, stay with me. 
how to worship God under the new covenant. Right? Look at our verse then again, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Now, the same four requirements are laid down under the new covenant. But how we fulfill them is different. So look with me at these four requirements that we're going to do. We're going to look again at the right person, the right place, the right offering, the right time. Take more time on the first one in case you're looking at the clock as we come around the Lord's table very appropriately. Okay, the first and most fundamental requirement is you need to come to or through the right person. See, under the old covenant, a Jew could just not turn up with his animal at the temple and make a sacrifice. No, he had to use an intermediary, a person appointed by God. And now in Israel, these intermediaries were called priests. And they all came from the same one tribe, the tribe of Levi. And the most important priest of all was called the high priest. And his most important role was to come to God on behalf of all the people of Israel on one particular day of the year, the day that was called the Day of Atonement. He would offer the blood of an unblemished lamb for all the sins of the people to make atonement so the people could be at one with God. Atonement. Reconcile to God. However, there were two serious problems or limitations with this system, with this way of approaching God. The first was the problem with the sacrifice. Uh, the sacrifice of a, of, of a lamb or another animal could only deal with the surface problem of sin. It could only make the worshipper ceremonially clean. It couldn't deal with the root problem of my sin. And along this was a sec- with this was the second problem, a problem with the priest. The high priest was himself a sinner. So he had to offer sacrifice for his own sin, first of all, and then for the sins of the people. And because he was a sinner, he would eventually die and have to be replaced by another high priest. And so a succession of high priests, beginning with the very first one, Aaron, followed right through the Old Testament period, right to the time of Jesus. Now, God's plan with this old covenant was always to replace it with a new and better covenant. Again, to use the Bible word, the old covenant was a shadow of the reality that was yet to come. And the prophets in the Old Testament looked forward to this. If you were with us in our series in 2007, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah particularly prophesied that God would make a new covenant with his people. And the person who made this reality possible was Jesus, God's Son, who made a new and better covenant. And what I want you to see very importantly and wonderfully is that Jesus answers both the problems of the old covenant. First of all, he is the perfect sacrifice for sin. He made the perfect sacrifice for sin because, tempted in every way as we are, he never yielded to sin, was able to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin, turning aside God's wrath, Standing in our place. So he dealt with the root problem of sin. Okay, here's Hebrews 9, 13, which reminds of this. Put it on the screen. Turn back if you want to. The blood of goats and bulls, this is animal sacrifices, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin. Not only that, he is the perfect high priest forever. Unlike the old high priest, he lives forever, raised from the dead. So the office of earthly high priest finished with the death of Jesus. There are no longer any high priests under the old covenant, valid ones anyway, on earth, because Jesus, sent to heaven, lives forever, the eternal high priest. Now, Hebrews 7 reminds of this, verse 23. The writer says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, this is an amazing and wonderful thing. That's why I chose that hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So the first requirement for worship, if you want to come to God, if you want to know God, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be reconciled to God, the very first requirement is you need to come to the right person. That's what our verse tells us. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continue after God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. That's the first requirement, the right person. Notice, secondly, the right place. Now, for the people of Israel, the place where they brought their sacrifices through a priest was designated and designed by God. To begin with, when they were en route through the promise, uh, to the promised land, through the desert on the way to, from Egypt to Canaan, it was the tabernacle, which was a movable tent that was erected every time they stopped and camped and then dismantled when they moved on. Once they were settled in the promised land, a temple was built, modeled on the tabernacle. And at its heart, right in the middle of it, the inner sanctum, was a place called the most holy place. Or in older versions, the holy of holies. This is where God had chosen to reside in all his glory. It was separated off from the rest of the temple by a heavy curtain which hung from the ceiling to the floor. And as we've seen, the high priest entered this place only once a year, carrying the blood of an animal as a sacrifice of a lamb for the sins of the people. It was a frightening experience. You know, the high priest's robe was designed with bells on the bottom, and he had a rope around his ankle. The bells were to let everybody know he was still alive in there, and the rope was to pull him out if he died through the experience of meeting with the living God, so they could drag him out without going in themselves. But when Jesus... The great high priest offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Notice something very interesting. When Jesus died for our sins, where did he die? Well, he wasn't in the temple. He didn't go in the Holy of Holies. He wasn't even in the city. No, he died outside the city walls in shame at a place called Golgotha, the place of a skull. Not just outside the city, but outside the old covenant. And when Jesus, the Lamb of God, died on the cross and cried in a loud voice, it is finished. Not just the work of salvation was finished. The old covenant was finished. For at that moment, the scriptures tell us, 
the curtain in the temple that separated sinners from a holy God was torn from top to bottom. The old system of sacrifice was over, finished. Forty years later, it was literally over when the Roman army marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD and raised the whole lot to the ground. But even before this, Christians are told that the place to which we must come is no longer the temple. Where do you come to, you ask? You come to the place where Jesus was sacrificed for our sin. We come to the cross of Jesus. And the writer of the Hebrews says to these Hebrew Christians, where do you go? You don't go to the temple. You go outside the camp, outside the religion of city and temple and animal sacrifice. Look again at the verses we read, verse 11 of Hebrews 13. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. So these Hebrew Christians are urged, don't go back to the temple. And all that entails. You need to come out from that and go to Jesus, gladly sharing in his disgrace. So I I, I pause for a moment to ask you, have you come through Jesus to the cross? It's the place where all of us come. This morning we're going to welcome six new members in. There is only one requirement for membership in Charlotte Chapel, essentially. That you've come as a sinner to Jesus at the cross. And the cross is level ground. Whoever you are, no matter how important you may be, how wealthy, how educated, we all come to the same place. We say with the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We come today to the Lord's table, which is the symbol that reminds us of the sacrifice Jesus made, the forgiveness that is offered to us. At the cross, we find forgiveness. And here's the wonderful thing. As we come to Jesus at the cross... We enter, says Hebrews, the most holy place. Access to which was restricted to one man once a year with the blood of an animal. So look at Hebrews 10, wonderful verses. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us by God, to God, through the curtain, there's no physical curtain, what is the curtain? His body, and since we have this great priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. The most holy place is no longer a physical location in an earthly temple. Instead, through the blood of Jesus... We come to him at the cross, and you can do that any place on earth, and in any location on earth. So this building we meet in today, it's taken me 17 years to keep saying this, and people still say, this is not a sanctuary. We don't have sanctuaries. It is not the house of God. It is a building where we meet. Of course, we respect it has happy memories for us. But friends, if it were burned down this week, God forbid you all say, but if if it were burned down this week, it wouldn't make any difference to our access to God. We could meet over the road in the gardens there if the weather was okay, and even if it wasn't okay. 
Now, there's nothing novel about this. The early Christians had no dedicated buildings, as far as we can tell from archaeology, until the end of the second century, and they did okay without them. They're not essential. They're useful, functionally. An old hymn written in the 18th century by William Cooper puts it really well. He says, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed crowned. Those poor Christians suffering for Christ. Out in the jungles, out in the difficult places on earth. They've got no special buildings, but they have access to the most holy place through the blood of Jesus, meeting at the cross and meeting around the Lord's table with bread and wine. Simple symbols of what it means to come to God through Jesus. So we come through the right person, Jesus, to the right place, his cross. And so we must bring, thirdly, the right offering. As we've seen, we cannot bring a sacrifice for sin. As we sing again, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So what do you bring? Well, under the new covenant, you don't bring an animal. You bring the sacrifice of praise. Look again at our verse. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. The sacrifice that we bring this morning is a sacrifice of praise. Praise is is the response of the whole person to all that God has done for him or her in Christ. We do not bring sacrifices with praise. Praise is the sacrifice, the sacrifice that pleases God. Now, under the old covenant, when people want to bring a thank offering to God, they usually brought some of the produce of the land, the fruit of the ground. Under the new covenant, notice the comparison, we bring the fruit of our lips. The expression, the fruit of our lips, is taken from the Old Testament again, from the prophecy of Hosea, the last chapter. Hosea preached to God's unfaithful people. This is what he said in Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer you the fruit of our lips. When we come to Jesus... We come to God through Jesus at the cross. We realize the enormity of our sin, which caused his death and made it necessary. We come in repentance and faith. We come in our need with broken and contrite hearts and seek God's forgiveness. And when you experience God's forgiveness, you know what you do? If you've really experienced it, you praise God. You respond in praise. Praise to Jesus. We confess the name of Jesus. All that he is and all that he's done. Now these two things are inextricably linked. The fruit of our lips and the confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's sadly only too possible like the people of Isaiah's day that Jesus quoted in his day. This people worship me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. I wonder if that's the case with us today. You see, we can mouth the words of songs of praise and so on. We can become blase singing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, you know, blah, blah, blah. We've heard it all before. Listen, these are amazing, astounding truths. And God needs to write them in our hearts. And every time you experience God's forgiveness at the cross, your response is one of praise. You offer to God the fruit of your lips, the sacrifice of praise. We don't bring the sacrifice of an animal. We bring the sacrifice of praise through Jesus. And you will only truly bring it if you have experienced God's forgiveness. 
For the only response adequate to respond, adequate response is the sacrifice of praise. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, put it in his usual striking way. Here's a quote, if you like old quotes. Praise is the rent which God requires for the use of his mercies. Praise is the rent which God requires for the use of his mercies. Finally and briefly, because you can express it almost in one word, I'll take a few more, the right time. In temple worship, you came with your sin at the right time. There were times of morning and evening sacrifice during the day when you came to the temple to seek forgiveness. Once a year, as we've seen, the nation came together to seek God's forgiveness on the Day of Atonement. But you could bring other sacrifices at other times during the day and year. In the temple, one of the duties of the priests was to keep the incense burning on the altar before the holy place. We don't have time to look at it, but the writer here says we have an altar, a different kind of altar as well, to the people under the Old Covenant. And that flame was renewed every day and night, so the flame never went out. Our praise is to be like that, continually offered to God. And so because you don't need to come to a specific place to praise God, you can praise Him anywhere at any time. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And the New Testament letters written to Christians scattered all around the world, most of whom would never get to Jerusalem, never even see the temple, reminds them that their life should be filled with constant praise at all times. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We praise God in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, 5, 16. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So let's be practical this morning. Are you filled with praise this morning? You say, what about my circumstances? What about the credit crunch? What about swine flu? What about my family circumstances? We can still praise God in all circumstances. Not for them, but in them. Because nothing changes. Whatever your circumstances are, Nothing can alter the fact that if you are a Christian, that Christ died for your forgiveness. You have peace with God and you have the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's where he finishes off in Hebrews 13 verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Our lives are to be filled with continual praise. Some of the great old hymns, one of my worries as pastor is that we're losing a lot of the old hymns. I love the modern songs, you know that, but keep up with the old ones because they often speak about things that Modern songs don't. Horatius Bonar, great Scottish minister. Fill thou my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise, that my whole being may proclaim thy being and thy ways. Not for the lip of praise alone, nor e'en a praising heart, I ask but for a life made up of praise in every part. That's the challenge. So, almost finished. That's the conclusion. Look at our verse once more. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. There's one word I haven't focused on. It's the word us. There is a great benefit of mutual encouragement 
meeting together with other Christians. You see, the problem is, when you don't feel like praising God and your circumstances are really bad, you get up Sunday morning and think, oh, I just can't go and praise God with all those happy Christians in Charlotte Chapel. I feel a fraud and I think I'll just stay in bed this morning and praise God in my own way from my bed, you know. Well, you can praise God in any place, but there is a great benefit. The writer of Hebrews says, don't give up meeting together as some people are in the habit of doing. We come together mutually to encourage one another to praise God, and that happens, doesn't it? Some people say to me, some of you have said to me, and I'll, I'll, I'm not going to identify anybody, you know, why do we sing all these songs? Why don't you just get on with the sermon and then we can go home? We sing all these songs because they're a response to God's word. Say, so why do you sing them again and again? Because in the Bible, they sang them again. Read the Psalms. They kept singing the same things over and over again. He's loving yours forever. Why? It, it reiterates, reinforces what we're singing. And in heaven, a vast choir of people sing the praise of Jesus. The Apostle John tells us of what he saw in heaven, this heavenly praise. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, if you're a Christian, meeting regularly with God's people, put it this way, I've said it before, it's worth saying again, what we do together when we meet together is the choir practice for the reality in heaven. The choir practice for the reality in heaven. So, let me finish with words with which Spurgeon himself, over a hundred years ago, preached on this verse. And here's how he concluded it. And I concluded the words are rather quaint, but you'll get the meaning of it. It's what he said. Just as the leader of an orchestra taps his baton to call all to attention and then to begin singing, so I this moment arouse you and bestir you. Great word. I bestir you to offer the sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. Let's come to Jesus and offer the sacrifice.